Well, this is an appeal from God to join his spiritual army, to join his end-time army. Now, I want you to turn to Judges chapter 6, and I'm going to show you a type and shadow of the end-time army. Judges chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Now, everything in the Old Testament is a type and shadow or a typology or a picture of what was going to come under the new covenant. Now, I call it a type and shadow because that's what the book of Hebrews calls it. Hebrews talks about the types and shadows in the Old Testament and how they foretell what was coming. The things that took place under the Old Testament now, they actually happened in the physical realm, but they're picturing things that were going to come to pass under the New Covenant. Okay, in Judges chapter 6, verse 1, it says, And the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian for seven years. Now, they're already in the promised land, but when they began to worship the idols and when they began to forsake God, then the law of sowing and reaping comes into effect. And when that happens, they find themselves under the heavy burden of the Midianites. Then down in verse 6, it says, So Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel and he said to them thus says the Lord the God of Israel it was I who brought you up from Egypt and brought you out from the house of slavery I'm the one that delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all your oppressors I'm the one that dispossessed them before you and gave you the land and I said to you I'm the Lord your God you shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live but you did not obey me Okay, God was reminding the people. He said, listen, I'm the one that brought you out of bondage. It wasn't your might. It wasn't your power that did it. And then he told them not to fear the giants. But he said, what got you into trouble is that you disobeyed me. You didn't do what I told you to do. And then in verse 11, Then the angel of the Lord came and said unto the oak, which belonged to Joash, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. Okay, we find out that the Midianites would come in and they would steal the crop after the crop was growing. And so many of them would hide to get food for their family. And Gideon was hiding in the winepress. He was trying to save some of the grain so that his family could eat. Now, the angel of the Lord in verse 11 came and met him there and then in verse 12 the angel of the Lord said to Gideon the Lord is with you O valiant warrior now the angel was seeing Gideon through God's eyes he was seeing him the way that God saw him now so often we don't feel much like a valiant warrior we don't feel very qualified for the end time army and sometimes we think oh Lord I know I'm living in these end times but Lord surely you can't use me I don't feel like I'm qualified. And we may be hiding in the wine press, but God is calling us a valiant warrior. God doesn't see us in our own strength. He sees us, and he sees what he can do through us. And so in verse 13, Then Gideon said to him, O oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his mighty miracles, which the fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and has given us into the hands of the Midians. Okay, now we see here that Gideon doesn't know God very well. 
He's heard all about the miracles that happened. His father and his grandfather has told him all these stories, but he doesn't have a personal understanding of God or he wouldn't be blaming him. He doesn't have any understanding that it was their own sin that got them into the predicament. And then down in verse 14, the Lord looked at Gideon and he said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? And he said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh and I'm the youngest in my father's household. And then we find the key in verse 16. But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you will defeat Midian as one man. Okay, now this is important. Number one, Gideon needed to know that God was going to be with him. God said, I'm going to be with you. Surely I'll be with you. And then he also needed to know, number two, that he was going to defeat Midian as one man. Now you need to store that out in the margin because that's the key to the spiritual army of the end days. You need to mark that down because number one, we need to know that God is going to be with us. He's going to be leading us all the way. And number two, it's so important to understand unity. It's so important to understand that the end time army is going to be one that is a teamwork, working together as the body of Christ. Okay, now chapter 7 tells us what took place in this battle. Now keep reminding yourself that everything we're reading is a picture of God's end time army. In verse 1, Gideon and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Herod, and the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands, lest Israel become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. Okay, God said, I, I don't want you to take a lot of people and have them feel like that they won the battle just because there were a lot of people. He said, I, I want you to know that I'm the one that gave you the victory. We're going to find out that there's a difference between just a lot of people and an army. You can have a huge number of people, and that doesn't necessarily mean that it's an army that can be used. And so in verse 3, he said, Therefore now come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying... Whoever is afraid, whoever is trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned, but 10,000 remained. Now that's appalling when we realize that God said the fearful can go home and 22,000 get up and go home. You know, so many times we pat ourselves on the back and we think, well, I'm not a fearful person, I don't have fear. But we don't realize sometimes how many subtle fears are motivating us in different areas of our life. Fear is one of the greatest reducers of the end time army. Now in verse 4, God then began to talk to Gideon and he tells him that there's still too many. He said, you've still got too many, so I want you to bring them down to the water and I'm going to reduce them again. And we find in verse 5 that Gideon brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, You shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. Okay, out of the 10,000 that have stayed there, the 10,000 who don't have any fear in their life, God only picks 300 who show discipline. And then in verse 7, the Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped, and I will give the Midianites into your hand. So let the other people go, each man to his home. 
Now, they didn't cease being God's children just because they went home, but they were not a part of the army. And in verse 8, so the 300 men took the people's provision, they took their trumpets in their hands, and Gideon sent all the other men of Israel, each to his tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Okay, we're going to find, number one, that these 300 men that he kept were sensitive to the voice of God. Number two, we're going to find out that they weren't afraid. Those that were afraid had already gone home. Number three, we find that they were disciplined. And then in verse 16, we find the number four quality. In verse 16, it says, And he divided the 300 men into three companies. He put trumpets and empty pitchers into the hands of all of them and torches inside the pitcher. You know, these men had to have been obedient. That was one of the qualifications because you know that when they were handed a pitcher and a, a torch and a trumpet, that must have seemed really, really strange. You know, how many of us would have taken that calmly and with faith if all of a sudden this is what we were handed to go into battle? Now, I'm afraid that Gideon would have heard every one of us start saying, what do you mean I'm supposed to go and fight this battle with a, a pitcher and a, a trumpet and a torch? But these 300 men, they were fearless and they were obedient. doesn't seem that it bothered them at all that that's what was given to them. And obviously now they weren't dealing with pride in their life because they don't seem to matter. They don't seem to mind that they're going into battle with this strange-looking artillery. They were ready to do anything that God told them to do. They were obedient to God, and they were obedient to Gideon. And so in verse 21, it says that each one stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran crying out as they fled. Okay, when they stood in their place and did exactly what God told them to do through Gideon, we find then that all of the uh, troops of the Midianites, they took off, they left. And they certainly did win as one man standing there with the power of God in their life. Now the information in verse 21 is very significant because it shows us the teamwork. They were each standing in his place around the camp. They were each in the place where God called them to be. Now God had said, I'm going to defeat Midian as one man. And he had weeded out the fearless. And he had these 300 men who were obedient. They were disciplined. And Gideon knew that whatever he told these men to do, he knew that they would be willing to do it. He, he was confident that they would follow what he told them to do. Look back in verse 17. Gideon had said to them, Look at me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. And we see then that he just seemed very confident. He said, You just follow me. Whatever you see me do, you do the same thing. And he was confident that they were going to do exactly that. And they stood in their place, and there was a team effort, and they won. Now, since this is a type and shadow or a typology of the end-time army, we can see then the qualifications that God requires of us if we want to be a part of the army. We're not going to be able to be bench warmers if we're going to be in this end-time army. Now, I'm going to point out five qualifications that make us eligible to be a part of the end-time army. This is so important. We were not born in this day and time for nothing. You know, when we were born in this end time period, we were born to be used in the end time army. But there are some things that we have to do to be qualified. 
Even in today's physical army, there's some things that will disqualify a person. I was talking with this young man the other day who tried to enlist in the service and he had a knee injury and they wouldn't take him. There was something that disqualified him from being able to enter into the service. Well, God is calling us to enlist in his army, but there are qualifications that will be required. Just as in Gideon's army, all of God's children were not qualified to be a part of the army. But the ones that did fight in the battle, they had the blessing, they received glory from having been able to fight in this battle, and they were partners with God. Okay, now we find that out of the 32,000, only the 300 who actually qualified, so that makes it one out of 100 when you start figuring that out. And I thought, oh my goodness, what a ratio. When you think about it, every time 100 men would walk up, only one was picked, and then another 100 would come up and another one was picked. But when you think of all the Christians and all the denominations around the world, that ratio sounds about right. About one in every 100 Christians will be able to come up and truly say, Lord, I want to be on the front lines. I want to march with you. I'll do anything that you tell me to do. That's about the ratio that it's going to be in the end days. Now, there's a place for everyone, and there's a tremendous benefit for being a part of the end-time army, but we have to qualify ourselves. See, God's not the eliminator. They eliminated themselves. So I want you to write down these qualifications because they're important. The number one qualification is desire. Now, sometimes we don't think about the fact that it takes a desire to be in God's end-time army. When we come to a place where we desire with every fiber of our being to want to be a part of what God's doing, to want to be a part of the answer, when we come to a place where we want to see people get set free from bondage and brought into the kingdom of God, you know, where we want to be a part of seeing them have their needs met and have God use us as a vessel through which their needs are met. When we come to that place, something is going to happen. Now, there should be a burning desire on the inside of each one of us that says, Lord, I want to be used. Just exactly like Isaiah looked up and said, Lord, here am I, send me. That needs to be on the inside of us. Now, if that desire is not there, then we need to confess it into being. There's times when we look and see something in the Word of God and we realize that's not really in me yet and we need to begin to confess. We need to begin to say, Lord, I don't want to end up just going to heaven and being eternally with you. I want to be a part of what you're doing right now. Before I go and live eternally with you, I want to do everything you've called me to do in this life. I'm here for a purpose. I'm here to help usher in the second coming of Jesus. And Lord, I want to be a part of that. And if that desire is not there, we need to just keep confessing that until all of a sudden that desire begins to build. And we need to be honest. God knows what's in our heart anyway. But Psalm 37 verse 4 says that he will give us the desire in our heart. He'll put that desire there. That's why we need to pray and say, Lord, according to Psalm 37, I'm trusting you. I'm choosing to be faithful. Lord, I want to be one of the faithful ones. I'm delighting myself in you. And you promised that you'd put godly desires on the inside of me. So I'm trusting you, Lord, that you're going to start planting that godly desire on the inside. Now, we're going to have to put all kinds of fears down because fear is a big reducer of the end-time army. And sometimes, without even realizing it, we have a fear of commitment. You know, sometimes there's a fear of what's going to be required of us. So 
Sometimes there's a fear of what we're going to have to give up if we're a part of God's army. But he wants us to sell out. He wants us to put our hand to the plow and not look back. He wants us to come to the place where we settle that conviction down on the inside of ourselves and we say, Lord, I'm going to be a part. I'm going to be a part of what you're doing. See, fear is a negative emotion and behind every procrastination, behind every complacency, you'll usually find a fear. And procrastination and complacency keep a lot of people out of the end time army. Now the time is too short to procrastinate. The time is too short to say, Lord, as soon as I finish this in my life or as soon as I get past this area, then I'm going to do what you want me to do. The time's too short. God says you can't procrastinate. So we need to find whatever fear that might be motivating us and we need to get rid of any negative assignments that are in our life, any negative things in our life that are keeping us from going on with God. And the way we do that is take that, be honest with ourselves and take it and put it on the altar and call out to God and say, Lord, I know you're going to deliver me. You said whoever calls on the name of, of the Lord will be delivered. And Lord, I'm placing this area in my life so that you can plant within me this zeal for the kingdom, this burning desire. See, another word for desire is zeal. Okay, the number two qualification then is that we need to allow God to channel that zeal or, or channel that desire. See, undisciplined zeal isn't worth much. It has to be God-led. Webster tells us that zeal means eagerness and enthusiasm. Now, the objective of our eagerness for God, our enthusiasm for God, is not just to impress people with our excitement. You know, our, the objective is not just to have people say, oh, look how excited they are for God. It has to be more than that. Our zeal needs to be placed on the altar and given back to God so that he can direct it, so he can take it in the direction that he wants it to go. So that we will come to a place of being just exactly like Gideon's army where we stand in our place and we pull together as a team in this end-time army. We don't want to be a lone ranger. See, a lone ranger can be very zealous but that's never going to get the job done. It has to be God-directed zeal that, that takes us where God wants us to be. Now, he'll direct that zeal, that desire, and he'll direct it into a tenderness, into a compassion toward the needs of other people. That's where he's bringing us, to a place where all of our enthusiasm and excitement is so dedicated to God that all of a sudden God's love flowing through us becomes compassion that reaches out to the world you'll begin to experience a sensitivity toward God and a sensitivity toward the Holy Spirit. Now let me give you an example. All the disciples of Jesus were filled with zeal, every one of them. But I think it's interesting as we look in the pages of the Gospels and we see how God directed that zeal, how God took that zeal and he directed it until they became what he wanted them to be in the kingdom. He began to channel it until he brought them to the place where they needed to be. Let me give you the examples. Simon the Zealot, now we're not talking about Simon Peter, but Simon the Zealot was a disciple, and just by his name, we know that he had to have been filled with zeal. He hated taxes, he hated the Roman government, he was a rebel rouser, and he was constantly trying to campaign against the Roman government. But God took Simon the Zealot and he began to channel that zeal 
until he had him to the place where he wanted Simon to be. And tradition tells us that Simon the Zealot literally turned Great Britain upside down for Jesus. Now, he couldn't have done that until he allowed God to take that undisciplined zeal and channel it in the direction that God wanted it to go. And when that happened and when he was obedient to God, then Great Britain had the gospel brought to them. Then there was Matthew, the tax collector. You know, I think it was interesting. Jesus called Simon the zealot who hated the tax collectors. Then he calls Matthew, who was a tax collector, and he calls him, and they have to learn to flow together with teamwork. And, of course, Matthew, being like the other tax collectors, I'm sure that he knew that the more taxes he collected, the more he was able to put in his pocket. So God had to channel all of those wrong motives. He had to channel all of that zeal, all of that energy, into a place where he was worth something in the kingdom of God. Now, I'm sure that most of you have heard about the Q documents. That was an early collection of the direct quotations of Jesus. And those were pursued, uh, uh, preserved through the years. Now, they say that Matthew was the one that collected all of those quotations and very carefully recorded them and handed them down. So God took that energy and he began to channel it into something that was useful in the kingdom. Now, you can tell from Matthew's gospel that the thing that God wanted to use him for and his, wanted to use the gospel for the, uh, the gospel of Matthew was so that the Jews would know that Jesus was the Messiah so we see that God channeled that zeal in that direction James and John were known as the sons of thunder they wanted to call down fire on every single person that didn't do it their way but Jesus was so patient he didn't let them call down the fire but he channeled that zeal until they became tender before God so tender that John became known as the disciple of love. Can't you just imagine the fisherman that had been with him before who knew him as a son of thunder, and then all of a sudden they see him and he's become the disciple of love? That raw zeal was channeled to such an extent that on the Isle of Patmos he was able to receive the revelation of Jesus Christ. And of course his brother James was filled with just as much zeal, but tradition tells us that when James was faced with being betrayed, the one that betrayed him later became a Christian, and when they asked him why he changed, he said, because of the tenderness that I saw in the man that I betrayed. Now, there was so much raw zeal uh, in, in Simon Peter. You know, we can just read all the different things about his life, and we see all this raw zeal. But... I never saw in the Gospels where Jesus rebuked him for his zeal. He just simply channeled it and he disciplined it until finally Peter came, became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. When Paul gives his list of personal credentials over there in Philippians chapter 3, he named zeal as one of the credentials that he had in the natural. He said, my zeal caused me to persecute the Christians. So zeal doesn't always cause us to do the right thing. We find that zeal just for the sake of zeal can kill people. You know, it can be dangerous. But God channeled it until he became a vessel that God could use to cause Christianity to become a worldwide religion. And zeal doesn't necessarily have to be loud. We find that Andrew had a quiet zeal. He just simply went and got his brother and brought him to Jesus, brought him to the place where he could get help. 
And I've seen a lot of quiet, sweet zeal in a lot of Christians. And they just see somebody hurting and they go to that hurting person and get them to a place where they can receive help. Now that's disciplined zeal. That's Holy Spirit directed zeal. Now the definition of godly zeal is a spark down on the inside of us that makes us want to do something for the kingdom. Now that's godly zeal when we want to do something for the kingdom. But disciplined godly zeal is that spark down on the inside of us that not only makes us want to do something for the kingdom, but it, it makes us want to give the zeal to God so he can direct us in the way we need to go. So channeled zeal now is not going to lose anything. It just adds a new dimension. It adds the dimension of gentleness. And gentleness is the fruit of power. That's what brings the power in our life. Now the picture of how God channeled the zeal in all these early Christians is a wonderful example of how he forms his spiritual end time army. Just like he took the zeal of that one who was after taxes and trying to get the taxes from the people and, and the one who was out to overthrow the Roman government and that one that was out killing Christians and the two that were known as the sons of thunder that wanted to call down fire. Just like God took that zeal and refocused their attention to accomplish his desire in the same way he's wanting to do that in us. Now I want you to notice that when God finished with them, they weren't, they weren't all doing the same thing. They all had different assignments. The six that I named, they were doing six different things for the kingdom. Everything from collecting the words of Jesus and writing the Q documents to establishing churches to writing the book of Revelation. But they were all in unity. Every one of them had a common goal. They weren't lone rangers. They weren't out doing their own thing. Every one of them was focused in on building the kingdom. And they were each standing in his place just exactly like Gideon's army. So how do we get our zeal disciplined? Okay, put down Proverbs 16, verse 3. You can look it up later. But the Bible tells us that if we will commit our works to the Lord, if we'll take our plans and we'll give them to God, that he will establish those plans and he'll make us successful. Okay, we're to take our plans, we're to take our zeal, we're to take our eagerness, our enthusiasm, and place those things before God and ask him to take them and, and rechannel them. We're to give him our ideas and allow him to channel them and conform them to his will. And when we do that, then we're going to find then that we'll be led in the direction that God wants us to go and we'll become a part of a team. Okay, that brings me to the number three qualification. The number three qualification is teamwork, it's unity. If you've ever watched a big corporation that's successful, you find that they're not all doing the same thing. There might be someone over there buying the advertising and a secretary will be over in one room typing the letters and there'll be a file clerk that'll be off somewhere filing and the board of directors will be meeting, making the decisions. There may be a CPA that's working on the books and maybe a salesman out selling the product. So they're all doing something different and yet if the company is a successful one, if the company's a good company, then they've channeled that zeal in each one of their employees to bring about the most good for the company. And they're all headed in the same direction with the same objective. They're a team. And even though they're doing different jobs, they're a team and they're working together to make the company successful. 
Well, I keep coming back to Gideon's army, but in Judges 6, verse 16, God said, you will defeat Midian as one man. See, God keeps pointing out the unity. In chapter 7, verse 21, he said, you'll win standing in your place. See, if any member of Gideon's army had run off and had done his own thing, it would have ruined the whole mission. Let's say one of them had blown his trumpet ahead of time. He, he could have literally lost the whole battle. Unity is so important. I want you to look at Genesis 11, verse 1. This is an excellent example of unity, even though it is unity in the negative. In Genesis 11, verse 1, the whole earth at that time was using the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain and they settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let's make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used bricks for stones and they used tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. They're in unity. God is saying right here that because they're in unity, that absolutely nothing that they purpose to do will be impossible. Now, he had to confuse their language so that they wouldn't be able to accomplish what they were trying to accomplish. That also lets us know that good communication helps to bring about unity. But God knew that their unified effort was going to get them where they were headed. Of course, they were headed in the wrong direction. Now, there's not unity and teamwork in Satan's kingdom. Everybody has his own agenda. Everybody has his own selfish purpose. But God doesn't allow that in his kingdom. That's not allowed. That's why he's hard on us. Anytime that we have one foot over in the enemy camp and we begin to doubt or we begin to get in fear or, or we begin to get in strife or jealousy or we begin to get into fault finding. Because anytime that we step into the enemy camp, we get into that same confusion, we get into that same disunity and we find that nothing works. Okay, that's why this number three quality is so important. That's why unity and teamwork is so important. And we're not going to have that if we've got one foot over in the enemy camp. Now, this spiritual army is not going to be seen by the world. It's a spiritual army. It's stationed all over the world. We're not going to all be out on the hillside like Gideon's army, all in one place. We're all over the world. You know, during World War II, if you'll remember, we had troops all over the world. Some were in the Pacific Islands. We had troops all over Europe. We had troops in the Middle East. Some of the troops were at home. Uh, some of them were behind death. Some were being trained. Okay, by the same token, in every country in the world, we have spiritual troops actively a part of God's army, actively uh, doing what God's called them to do. Now, in the Word, it talks about the church at Ephesus. It talks about the church at Corinth. Okay, it's the same thing today. We have the church at Brownwood. We've got the church at Stephenville, the church at San Antonio. We have the, the church in China. 
we're all a part of the universal army and God has different things that he's called us to do. Now we're not going to all be doing exactly the same thing but the goal, the objective is going to be the same no matter where the troops are located and that is to declare Jesus as Lord and to snatch people out of the kingdom of darkness and get them over into the kingdom of light Even, but we'll all have different assignments. Brownwood is going to be given some specific assignments just for this area. Just like other churches in different places will be given specific assignments. And there's going to be people of all ages in this army. They'll all be, uh, there'll be little ones following God. There'll be middle aged elderly people. People who are willing to prepare and train themselves in the word, in the whole counsel of the word. There'll be some who are assigned to pray and, and intercede. There are going to be others who will be out in the hospital laying hands on the sick. A lot of people will be in secular jobs all over the world and their very life and their example is going to be promoting the kingdom of God. There'll be people in every field, in the entertainment field, in the sports field. Some will be behind pulpits. Some will be running Christian radio stations, putting the message out on the airwaves. Others will be in prisons. Others will be in street ministries. Others will be getting Christian schools ready, helping the children to be taught biblical truths and restoring the biblical principles on which this nation was founded and preparing children academically. You know, there's going to be people who will take a friend out to lunch and share Jesus while they're having lunch. There's going to be others doing spiritual warfare, hand-to-hand combat right on the front lines. Others are going to be praisers, praising and and worshiping God and, and leading other people into the throne room. See, we're going to all have different things to do, but he's wanting us to learn to be obedient to accomplish whatever it is that he's called us to do. There'll be some who will be putting large amounts of money to support the cause, and God will use them to be givers. The Bible tells us, whatever our hand findeth to do, do it with our might. Everyone will need to be standing in his place doing exactly what God has told him to do. Now that's why we have so many prophecies that tell us that you know the people have to get out of the grandstands and get down on the playing field. And just like all the exercise and all the energy that's spent when somebody is in a physical battle keeps physical flesh off their body. It keeps them physically trim. We're going to find in the same way as we stay active and obedient, it's going to trim off the the spiritual flesh. It's going to keep us spiritually fit. Now, any time that somebody gets tired and they quit, or any time they get into unconfessed sin and they get distracted, or maybe when they decide to do their own thing and they quit following God's leadership, it's going to hurt the team. And, and it's going to leave an opening on the front lines that allows the enemy to come in. Because every one of us are responsible for our sphere of influence. And if we let down, that you know, there's, there may not be anybody to take our place. It may just leave an opening, and it may keep someone from being able to, to come into the kingdom. Sheep begat sheep right where they're living. And if we're not doing what God's called us to do, that group of sheep in our sphere of influence may not have anyone to take our place. Now, our commander-in-chief and those in authority under him, they're there to equip us. They're there to help us stay in line to know exactly what we're supposed to do. They're, They're there to keep us focused and equipped and prepared. 
Now, the army may not look real organized with everybody filling different stations, but if we're doing the job that God's called us to do, and if we're supporting one another, and, and if we're unified with, with the same purpose, and we're exposing every trick of the enemy and not allowing him to come in with fault finding and strife and all kinds of, uh, of evil deeds, not even minding if somebody else gets the, uh, the praise and the credit for something that maybe we've done. If we'll keep ourselves focused, then we'll be a vital part of God's mighty army and the reward we get will be being laid up in heaven. That's where the rewards come in. Now the number four qualification is obedience, submission. God prepares his body and it operates just exactly like our physical body. We can't even imagine our arm jumping off and doing its own thing while the rest of the body's going a different direction. But it's exactly the same in God's army, God's body. If anybody's running off doing his own thing, it's going to be just as ridiculous as if our arm was over trying to do its thing while the rest of the body was pulling together. God wants us to be restfully available to him. So we're, we're ready then to do exactly what he calls us to do exactly when he's ready for us to do it. Where we come to a place where we don't let our reasoning dictate to us what to do, but we say, God, I don't want to do anything unless you've called me to do it. You know, I had a young man come back from boot camp years ago, and he said that he was told at boot camp that he wasn't paid to think. And I can remember when I first heard that, that it made me so angry, and I thought, what are they trying to do? Are they trying to take all the initiative out of our young men? And later, I came to realize how wrong I was in my thinking because I read a story of something that happened in the Vietnam War this group of soldiers were going in behind the enemy lines and they were told that they were not to fire until their commanding officer gave them the signal. Well, this one young man saw a North Vietnamese and he was within range and so he decided that he just couldn't pass up that opportunity and he fired ahead of time. And they said that hundreds and hundreds of American soldiers were killed and it never should have happened. It, it was an unnecessary slaughter. In a physical army, if any one soldier starts doing his own thinking, he can get a whole platoon killed. Okay, by the same token, in the spiritual army, it's very dangerous for someone to do his own thinking when he starts following after his own plans. God tells us in Proverbs 3 that we have to lean not to our own understanding. There's one commander-in-chief in this army, and then under him, there's a lot of officers in charge there's delegated authority, then the rest of us are expected to enlist and just be ready to be obedient, be ready to do what we're told to do, ready to follow the leading of those that are in authority over us. Now that's what it's talking about in Hebrews 13, verse 17. Now I want to read that to you. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Be unprofitable with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So God is our commander-in-chief, but there are those in authority. And God is saying, those in authority over us will have to give an account of how well we obeyed, how well we submitted. And he said, let them do this with joy and not with grief. It'll give them grief if they have to give the report that we were not obedient. 
And he said, it will also be un unprofitable for you. Okay, number five. We can't be self-pleasers. Can't be people-pleasers. We have to be God-pleasers for this end-time army. We have to relinquish all pride. We have to relinquish any self-righteousness, any need for people-pleasing. Our desire has to be to please God. Now, this is one of the main qualifications of the army. I want you to look in 2 Samuel chapter 6, and we're going to look at verse 14. Now, this is a wonderful example of someone who chose not to be a people-pleaser, but instead to be a God-pleaser. David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. And it happened as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David that Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Okay, she was embarrassed. She was full of pride, and, and she definitely was a people pleaser. Now, a lot of people read this, and they think that it means that David was dancing with not enough clothing on, but that's not what this is talking about. He had enough clothing on. He simply took off his kingly robe, which signified his earthly authority. This kingly robe, see, it represented prestige, and he put on a priestly robe. That was the symbol of servanthood. But his wife, she didn't like that one little bit. That was not the proper dress for the king in her eyes. Now, she probably learned this from her father, King Saul. Because if you'll remember when Samuel came to tell Saul that he was in sin, do you remember what Saul said? He said, oh, please don't make me look bad in front of the people. See, he was a people pleaser. He was constantly afraid of what the people were going to think. And I'm sure she had learned well from him. She didn't want to be embarrassed in front of all of her friends. See, these maidens that she was referring to, these were her peers. They, these were people that she knew. Now, when we come to a place where we're overly concerned with what people think if they're not following God, then we're not going to please God. And that old pride is going to keep us from the humility of obeying God fully. But look down in verse 20. It says, When David returned to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants' maids as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. And I will be more lightly esteemed than this, and I'll be humble in my own eyes. But with the maids of whom you have spoken, with them I will be distinguished. Okay, when we're obeying God, God's going to see to it that we have respect and we have esteem by the right people. But the main thing, God wants us to be humble in our own eyes, willing to do the things that he's called us to do, and not be filled with intimidation because of what people think. Fear of what people think now, that's another big reducer of the end-time army. Okay, do you want to be a part of the end-time army? Do you want to be a part of it enough to go down the checklist and, and find out what it takes to be qualified to be in that army? See, God has us as a body, and he's calling us into it, calling us into our specific things, but we have to be willing. We have to be willing to qualify ourselves by looking at the checklist and saying, Lord, I want these things. I want to be a part of the army enough to allow you to do these things in my life. 
Now, in this particular body, we have five main objectives, five main goals that God has given to us. We'll all be doing different things, but we'll all be headed in the same direction. We'll have the same objective. We'll have the same goal. I'm just going to list the five things because I like for, to keep those five things in front of us all the time. Our number one goal is to get people saved and turned on to Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit. Our number two goal is to encourage people into a love walk so that they don't just know Jesus as their Savior, but they come to a place where they have an intimate love walk with the Lord. God's given us as a third goal to train people to take the whole counsel of the Word of God and make this Word final authority in every area of our life. For the Word's our final authority. The number four objective that He's given us is to see that every person finds his place in the body where they find their ministry and get plugged in, where people realize that, that they're not just in a church just to warm a pew, but they have a ministry call on their life, and God wants them to find their place. And then our number five objective is to find the hurting people around us and help them get the help they need through God's Word. Now, those are our goals. Those are the things that God's told us to do. And even though we'll each have different job descriptions, we're going to all be pulling in the same direction. We're going to all be a part of a team that's going to accomplish the goal together. Father, thank you that you've given us the opportunity, Lord, to live in this day and time. You've given us the opportunity to be a part of your end-time army. Lord, there's no greater privilege in the world than to have you, the God of the universe, allow us to be in partnership with you. Lord, we don't deserve it, and you didn't have to do it that way, but, Lord, we're so grateful and so thankful that you did. Now, Father, I thank you that you've given us examples in the Word of God so we can know how your end-time army functions and, and how to qualify ourselves to be a part of it. Lord, you've made it very clear to us. And so, Father, I thank you that, and even now as we pray, Lord, we're just saying, Lord, plant this desire on the inside of us. And then, Lord, we give the desire back to you to allow you to channel that zeal and channel that desire so that we'll be useful in the kingdom. Father, I thank you that you're bringing us into unity, into teamwork, Father, that, that we're going to be pulling together. And even though we might all have something different to do, we might all have a different function, Father, I thank you that, that we will be one big team, one big corporation working together. Lord, I'm so grateful to you that you love us enough to, to do this. Father, I, I thank you that we're not going to be people pleasers, but, Father, we're going to be God pleasers. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name.